Hello and welcome to the Litigation Podcast presented by Blackstone Chambers. Join our barristers as they discuss their expertise on trending topics and debates in the legal sector. If you want to be part of the discussion, subscribe below to receive our latest episodes. Hello and welcome to this episode of Memorable Cases with Tom Hickman KC, Tom Croxford KC and myself Stephen Nathan KC. Today I will be discussing the case of Kuwait Airways against Iraqi Airways and the state of Iraq, which started uh, with a writ which was issued on the 11th of January 1991. Uh, the subject of the litigation was the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein's Iraq the previous August, August 1990, when within two days Iraq conquered Kuwait. That resulted in universal condemnation around the world and sanctions almost immediately were imposed by the United Nations on uh, Iraq. And eventually, in February 1991, there was the first Gulf War which uh, recaptured Kuwait from the Iraqis and essentially left Saddam Hussein in power for many years to come until the second Gulf War took place. This litigation was quite remarkable for everyone involved because uh, it took 22 years before it was finally concluded to the very day. It was a case in the commercial court and it is the longest running case that there has ever been on record in the commercial court in London. The subject matter were 10 aircraft which the Iraqi government stole from Kuwait Airways at the time of the invasion, there they were two Boeing 767s, three Airbus A300s, and five Airbus A310s. The invasion took place on the 2nd of August, and by the 9th of August, nine of the aircraft that had belonged to KAC, Kuwait Airways, were flown out, with the 10th one being flown out two weeks later. Then on 9th September 1990, the Revolutionary Command Council of Iraq passed Resolution 369, which bestowed, or gave purportedly, ownership of these 10 aircraft to Iraqi Airways, the national carrier of Iraq. The problem being that for, for Iraqi Airways, it didn't really have anything it could do with the aircraft because of the international sanctions. Um, and the aircraft were eventually located in November 1990 as to four of them in uh, Mosul airfield um, belonging to the military, uh, standing close to some hangars which were used or supposedly going to be used for storing weapons of mass destruction. And just before the war started, uh, six of the aircraft were flown out from Baghdad on the instruction of the Iraqi government and flown to Iran for safekeeping and eventually uh, the Iranians having flown them for the best part of two or three years, eventually they were given back to Kuwait Airways. The litigation was terribly complex because we ended up in the end going up to the Court of Appeal five times and up to the House of Lords three times. And the case is interesting from lawyers' point of view because it established a number of principles which I'll speak about as we go along. Stage one was first of all a challenge to service. At the time when the writ was issued, in January 1991, there was a war about to happen 
the Iraqi embassy was closed in London and there was no way that one could effectively serve the writ in the way required by English law. The uh, claimant sought to serve Iraq nevertheless at its embassy in uh, London. So far as Iraqi Airways is concerned, IAC, the claimant served it at its offices in Regent Street in London, which had been closed and were being looked after by a man described as the old man of the office who was acting as caretaker. The first step was that the defendants both challenged jurisdiction and challenged service. Mr Justice Evans in April 1992 held that uh, service uh, on Iraq had not been successful because the statutory requirements were ones which had to be followed, they could not be followed and were not followed and therefore there was no valid service upon Iraq. Uh, but he held that there had been valid service in respect of the man looking after the office of IAC so that there was jurisdiction in London. He also held that Iraqi Airways could be sued um, and didn't enjoy any immunity. That element went up to the House of Lords very quickly. The House of Lords upheld the decision that there was no effective service on Iraq, so the, the government of Iraq came out of the case at that point. Uh, the House of Lords also held that Iraqi Airways had limited immunity from suit um, in respect of the acts of seizure uh, and the removal of all 10 aircraft because what had happened there was that this was an act of sovereign authority exercised by the government of Iraq. But a majority of their lords held that the acts of retention of the aircraft by Iraqi Airways after Resolution RCC 369 was passed um, were not acts that were immune and that therefore the English court had jurisdiction over Kuwait Airways claims after that date. And that's quite important for what happened later on. Stage two was that Mr Justice Mance then in uh, 2002 decided a number of preliminary issues. First of all, he held that uh, Iraqi Airways wasn't entitled to rely on the Resolution 369 to asserts that its actions um, in relation to all 10 aircraft were lawful because that was the law of Iraq. He also held that Iraqi Airways was guilty of wrongful interference with the aircraft, but he went on to hold that in principle a KAC was entitled to claim damages but subject to the principles of causation and remoteness of damage, both in English law and in Iraqi law. They had a double hurdle to overcome. And in Iraqi law they had a principle like in English law of a but-for test uh, so far as anything, uh, any damages claimed for physical damage to the aircraft. But in relation to wrongful detention, the test was whether the loss resulted naturally from the interference, which is not the same as in English law. Having ruled on those preliminary issues, we then went on to the next step, which was a trial in front of Mr Justice Aikins, as he then was. This was in late 1992. He's held that the first test was the English law test, which was also the same in Iraqi law. He had to decide whether the loss would have occurred but for the tort of the defendant. 
He also held that the test for remoteness of damage was the same in English law for all torts. That is to say, the test is, was it reasonably foreseeable that there was uh, such damage going to be suffered, rather than a test whether it was direct or the natural result of the tort. He then did a rather careful analysis of the positioning of the aircraft, which took up an enormous amount of time at the trial. And I recall uh, that I ended up having to cross-examine the head of the Allied Forces Air Force, who was a, by then a retired uh, American general uh, who would have nothing of what my cross-examination was about. But there we were. Um, Mr. Justice Aitkins held that the aircraft were placed at various airfields uh, around Iraq by the 17th of November, 1990 that is. After that, four aircraft were taken up to Mosul on the instructions of the government and they remained there and were eventually destroyed by Allied bombing in January or February 1991. As for the remaining six aircraft, who were called the Iran Six, uh, they were originally in Baghdad until they were flown out of, of Iraq to Iran, again on government orders, where they remained until the Iranians eventually gave them back. And then the humdinger, which actually startled all of us, was that he held that the positioning of all of the 10 aircraft would not have been any different but for the wrongful interference of Iraqi airways. Therefore, the claimants had failed to establish and get over the but-for hurdle which existed both in English law and in Iraqi law. Therefore, he held that KAC had actually failed to prove any of the loss and damage was recoverable because they had failed under causation. That, not surprisingly, caused consternation amongst the ranks of KAC. And uh, we were somewhat startled by its outcome, but very pleased to find that what had been an act of fairly brutal warfare um, had resulted in a victory at trial in front of an English judge who was effectively somewhat retrying um, part of the original uh, invasion of Kuwait. KAC appealed to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal held so far as the Mosul 4 aircraft were concerned, uh, KAC had got nowhere near being able to get over the, the hurdle of but 4 um, and therefore their claim failed in respect of the Mosul 4 completely. But the Court of Appeal went on to hold that the judge was wrong to apply a but-for test in relation to the Iran 6, because in English law, conversion is a tort of strict liability, and the claimant was entitled, therefore, to recover all losses flowing naturally and directly from the act of conversion. That satisfied Iraqi law. So far as English law is concerned, the loss sustained by the claimant under each of the heads that they were claiming was foreseeable and therefore they were entitled to recover under English law and therefore the Court of Appeal held that they had satisfied the double test of double action and actionability and they remitted the case to the Commercial Court for uh, an assessment of damages. IAC appealed to the House of Lords and in order to get permission to appeal IAC was obliged to, was required by the court to bring into court uh, $65 million, which was not a small sum. And I recall very well going with my instructing solicitor, Joseph Kosky. We travelled to Iraq. In those days, you could not go by plane direct as one could do now. 
uh, or indeed in the days before the invasion of, of uh, Kuwait. We had to travel to Iran by plane. We then had to spend a day, 12 hours by car, to go from uh, Amman all the way down to Baghdad by road. In fact, it was quite an enjoyable trip. And on, we'd done several of these trips. And on one of them, because we'd set off so late from Amman, we ended up going through uh, the, the desert in Iraq in the middle of the night. So I got everybody to stop. And we all sat, lay back in the sand and watched the stars for an hour because it was actually quite stunning. There was no light pollution whatsoever. It was quite a, a remarkable event. Um, and when we used to go down to uh, Iraq, we used to, to take all sorts of things. We took ball pens and chewing gum and chocolate and drinks for, for children and things of that kind. Um, and we used to stay in a hotel, which was a five-star hotel, with a full staff, but actually no guests. There were, from time to time, the odd guest here or there, but otherwise there was nobody. It was very eerie and very strange and very odd. Anyway, to resume, IAC appealed to the House of Lords, as I've said, and the Lords delivered their judgment in May 2002, rejecting IAC's appeal, uh, essentially on the grounds that the English court, as a matter of English public policy, would not recognise the making of RCC Resolution 369 on the grounds that even though normally the English court would not interfere in uh, foreign legislation and would always recognize foreign legislation, there were exceptions. And this was one of those exceptions, not unlike some of the Nazi laws which had been passed uh, against individuals. Uh, this was a law which had been passed against a corporation um, and it offended against not only English public policy, but also if the uh, English court had recognized it, that would have been contrary to the United Kingdom's obligations under the United Nations Charter. So Iraq was given a very firm kicking at that point by the House of Lords. As a result, the House of Lords held that at this point, IAC was now liable for all 10 aircraft from the 17th of September, the date of RCC Resolution 369. That left the period between the invasion and 17th of September up in the air where there was no liability. The next stage was that after the Gulf War, KAC managed to find a whole container load of documents which had been hidden away from sight by the Iraqis and on the instructions of the Iraqi government, um, which showed that the, essentially most of their evidence had been a series of lies uh, and that we as their legal advisers had been thoroughly lied to, unfortunately. And they had concealed a number of documents which showed that Iraqi Airways had in fact been intermeddling, dealing with and looking after and handling the aircraft right from the start from the 9th of August. The first step that KAC sought to do was to petition the House of Lords to set aside its judgment on the grounds that it had been induced by fraud and the House of Lords rejected that petition. So the next step was that the KAC set about with a new action, which they brought for a declaration that the, the judgment should be set aside and should not be um, recognized insofar as it dealt with the period of time between 9th of August and the 17th of September. And eventually in front of Mr. Justice Steele, they succeeded Eventually then, in 2008, the KAC 
sought an order for its costs uh, against not only uh, IAC, which had no assets in England, but also against the Iraqi government. Their costs by this stage were well over 41 million pounds, an enormous sum. And uh, they were granted an order against the Iraqi government of that amount. There was, of course, no way that KAC could effectively enforce its judgment. But eventually, 22 years after the start of the litigation, both governments ended up compromising and settling the claim on a basis which was never disclosed publicly. And so ended one of the most remarkable pieces of litigation that I think I've ever been in, uh, and certainly the longest running case in the commercial court. Hi, I'm Tom Croxford Casey, and I'll be discussing one of my most interesting cases, Nissan and Passi. I acted for Nissan, the Japanese car maker, in claims brought by its former global general counsel, the head of its global legal department, for whistleblowing dismissal and detriment. And I also acted in Nissan's claim against him for injunctive relief, requiring him to hand back privileged and confidential documents he had taken. The case was very high profile because Mr. Passy was global general counsel at the time when the investigation commenced into the conduct of Carlos Ghosn, Nissan's chairman, his subsequent arrest, and then his escape from house arrest in Japan, assisted by former US Marines who hid him in a musical instrument box and smuggled him to the Lebanon on a private jet. Passy brought claims in the Employment Tribunal in England, asserting that he'd blown the whistle on alleged flaws in the investigation of Carlos Ghosn and alleged conflicts of interest within Nissan arising out of the same circumstances. He was dismissed by Nissan and brought a further claim in England under whistleblowing legislation seeking interim relief on an urgent basis to continue his contract of employment. That was the first public hearing at which I appeared leading Tom Mountford and against Craig Rajkapoor, both of whom are colleagues in chambers and friends of mine. Nissan was successful. Thereafter, Mr Passy gave many interviews to the press and even contributed to TV programmes, giving some detail on issues that were confidential to Nissan. A little later, as we were moving towards the final hearing in the case, disclosure of relevant documents was given by Mr Passy, revealing that he'd retained confidential and privileged documents after his dismissal, contrary to express statements he'd made on the termination of his employment. Those documents have been provided to his lawyers in the course of him seeking legal advice. He claimed that his provision of them to his lawyers was covered by legal professional privilege, such that he'd been entitled to retain them in his solicitor's possession. We then commenced proceedings in the High Court against Mr Passy seeking an injunction to require him to return all copies of the documents, whether in his possession or the possession of his lawyers. Passy's arguments were dismissed and we were granted the injunctions we sought 
to recover all of those confidential and privileged documents. The whole litigation was a complete delight to be involved with. The clients were fully engaged in dealing with the eye-popping allegations and this was at a time when the trial of Ghosn's sidekick, Greg Kelly, was slated to commence in Japan with one of the individual respondents in our litigation due to give evidence for a month in the Japanese criminal trial, making our tribunal litigation of huge importance to Nissan at a global level. The strategic interests were rendered even more complex by the multi-jurisdictional issues that arose, particularly in relation to differences in legal professional privilege between England, the US, which has a more expansive scope of privilege, and Japan, which has a very underdeveloped law of privilege. In addition, the High Court injunction proceedings gave rise to a judgment with which all employment lawyers are now intimately familiar, given the newly apparent limitation on the ability to plead legal privilege as a defence to exfiltration of confidential and privileged documents by an employee. Much of the litigation was in the full public eye, enhanced by Mr Passy's endless contact with the press in multiple jurisdictions. But perhaps the most enjoyable feature was the chance to see the full and unvarnished detail of the entire Carlos Gomes saga, and then be able to contrast that with the many half-truths and lies in the Gone-influenced media reports of the same issues. Thank you for listening to my most memorable recent case. My name is Tom Hickman. I'm a barrister at Blackstone Chambers, and I'm going to talk about my most memorable case, which is the first Miller case. The first Miller case, for those who don't know it, was the case about whether the government could trigger the UK's um, exit from the European Union uh, without an act of Parliament. And the case went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held um, by a majority, sitting uh, as a panel of 12 judges for the first time that it had ever done that, that uh, the UK government could not trigger the UK's exit from the European Union without an act of Parliament. I was junior counsel in the case to David Panic, acting for Gina Miller, and therefore it was quite a big win, um, to put it mildly, and it was a fairly exhilarating case to be involved in. The case was really divisive. It um, was extremely high profile, led to newspaper front pages picturing judges, labelling them as enemies of the people. It was live-streamed by the Supreme Court and watched by several million people, I understand, around the world. And uh, it was the subject of newspaper articles, front-page articles, newspapers across Europe and the world, and it was the subject of comment and discussion. One of my instructing solicitors was doing a case in Singapore at the time and, and people were watching the case there and commenting on how remarkable it was that the the court in this country was prepared to 
find against the government on such a high-profile matter. I also had a um, particular personal involvement um, or personal interest in it in that um, the, the argument, the core arguments that were run, which were that it would frustrate the European Communities Act for the government to withdraw uh, from the EU or trigger withdrawal from the EU without an Act of Parliament, and the fact that that would remove people's rights, which is a, um, something that can only be done um, by legislation, uh, were arguments that had been set out in a, in a blog post that uh, I'd written with uh, Professor Nick Barber of Oxford and Professor Jeff King of UCL. Um, and we, we wrote that blog post uh, the weekend after the um, referendum results. The referendum result was announced, I think, on a Friday morning or possibly a Thursday morning. In fact, we'd been having dinner together the night of the referendum. I remember us discussing the fact that we thought there'd be a narrow um, result in favour of Remain. Um, and, of course, we woke up the next morning and discovered that wasn't the case. And, and, and we immediately started um, thinking about this blog post, which was written over the weekend and published, I think, on the Monday. Uh, and it then went viral, I think it's fair to say. It was everywhere because people viewed it as a possible spoiler argument to um, the, the UK leaving the EU. Uh, it couldn't be done uh, by the government triggering Article 50. It needed to be by an act of Parliament. In fact, we didn't really intend it as a spoiler um, at all. We, we, we did think it was an important constitutional point uh, uh, that we thought the government would be able to raise with its negotiating partners uh, to get some leverage. Um, it could say to its EU counterparts, well, hold on, um, this isn't going to happen quickly, we've got to go to Parliament, uh, we want some assurances before we trigger the process. But the, the argument quickly took on a life of its own, uh, and within a few days, David Panic, uh, Lord Panic, had been instructed um, to act uh, on behalf of clients, uh, and one client in particular emerged as the lead claimant in the litigation, that was Gina Miller, uh, and I was instructed as David Panic's junior. So the reason I was instructed in the case was that David Panic, um, very kindly, said that he would only agree to be instructed on the case if I was instructed as his junior, um, given that I had um, been involved in the production of the argument. I should say, I mean, there's more of a backstory to this. Um, the argument in the blog post, um, I think was published on the Monday morning on the UK Constitutional Law blog, possibly the Tuesday morning. Now, I'm fairly sure it was the Monday morning. Um, and I came into chambers and everyone was talking about the referendum results and people were already talking about the blog post. Uh, and I was standing in the corridor in Blackstone Chambers, just outside my room, talking to Tom de la Mer and a couple of other people. David Panic appeared at the end of the corridor um, and he was clutching some papers and he sort of waved at me and said, Tom, can I have a, have a couple of minutes of your time? He took me into the stairwell and he interrogated me uh, for about um, sort of four or five minutes uh, on the argument in the, in the blog post. He said he'd read it would have been drawn to his attention uh, by another member of Chambers. Um, and he wanted to, you know, test the arguments, which he did, and asked me a whole host of questions which went way beyond the issues in the blog post, but which 
um, fortunately, given some thought to. Um, and at the end of that um, exchange in the stairwell, he said, right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write about this in my um, column in the Times on Thursday. At that point, David did a bi-weekly column in the Times newspaper. And he did, and he wrote a column in the Times where he referred um, to our blog post and he said he agreed with the argument in it. And he said that it was necessary for Parliament to enact legislation in order to, uh, for the UK to trigger Article 50 um, of the uh, Treaty of European Union. And that, of course, once David Panic has um, endorsed your argument, um, sent the argument to another level and questions are being asked in Parliament and, and uh, everything seemed to um, rather explode. Uh, and it was very shortly after, I think, the day that that was published that David was instructed on the case and um, I was instructed on the case. And so I had a personal interest in the argument and, and everyone um, seemed to be out to bash it and say it was wrong, couldn't possibly succeed and was completely hopeless, um, which obviously was, a, was an interesting an interesting. Uh, period of my career um, but in the end the arguments uh, prevailed and um, and it was a definitely my most memorable case thank you for listening to the litigation podcast presented by blackstone chambers subscribe below to receive our latest episodes and visit blackstonechambers.com to learn more